Session seven, I'm calling this session Loving Our Enemies. And what I mean by that is loving our theological enemies, speaking of the Muslim peoples who are, in fact, our theological enemies, whose theological system stands in direct conflict with all of the essential uh, orthodox historical doctrines of biblical faith, of the Christian faith down throughout history, the incarnation, the cross, the divine incarnation of God the Son, Islam stands in direct polemical conflict with all of these things. And we're going to discuss how it is that we as believers are to love our theological enemies. And oftentimes our political enemies as well. But we want to focus on the uh, theological side. And so in order to do that, what I want to do is <clears throat> we're going to look at some scriptures and read quite a bit of scripture from Genesis and go back to the story of Ishmael, Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac, and discuss really the pan-historical, the larger picture of the unfolding of God's promised plan down through the ages, and the spiritual origins from a biblical perspective of the Islamic religion. And so we're going to begin with the story of Ishmael. Now, of course, we are uh, spiritual children of Abraham. We all know the, the basic outline. Abraham was the father of Ishmael and Isaac. But it was through Isaac that the promised plan of God would be enacted and brought about into the earth. It was through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then through Judah and Jesus. And through Jesus would come the redemption of all of the earth. And it was through that line that we have the fulfillment of the promised plan of God, the fulfillment of the coming of the Messiah that would bring redemption to all of us, the resurrection of the dead, the healing and the redeeming of all creation. But on the other side, you have Ishmael, and then the brother of Jacob as well was Esau. And the intermarrying of these various uh, eastern peoples with Ishmaelites and the, the Edomites. And then from that, in a very general sense, we had the physical uh, descendants, which is uh, that which Muhammad claims to be a direct descendant of Ishmael, and really the, the religion of Islam. Obviously, Muhammad is the father of the religion of Islam. So we're going to begin in Genesis 16, beginning with verse 1. We're going to read the account of the, the, the birth of Ishmael and then Isaac and, and draw out some very important uh, spiritual principles in all of, these, uh, all of these things. Now, Sarai, this is before it was Abraham and Sarah. There's still Sarai and Abram. Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Now the Lord had promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have a promised child. That in their old age they would give birth. And that had not taken place. The Lord's promise was long in keeping. They became impatient. They took it into their own hands because of a lack of trust in God. And they decided to bring these things about through their own means and not through the means that the Lord promised that he would provide. So she says, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. That was bad idea number one. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. That was bad idea number two. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. Now notice the beginning. At the beginning of this, Hagar is referred to as his wife. 
Sarah begins with, again, the very bad idea of trying to take these things into her own hands and, and giving her maidservant to her husband. He agrees to this. And initially, Sarah refers to Hagar as Abram's wife. Verse 4, Abram slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. So thus begins the cycle of sin and brokenness. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. And then Abram, the, uh, the, the wimpy Abram, says, your servant is in your hands. Again, the cycle of sin continues. He says, do whatever you want to her, whatever you think is best. So now Sarai mistreats Hagar. Hagar begins to despise Sarah, and then Sarai in turn mistreats Hagar, so Hagar flees from Sarai. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? It's very reminiscent to the story in the garden where the Lord comes and he asks questions. Of course, the Lord knows the answer, but he asks questions of, of, of Hagar. He says, where have you come from? Where are you going? She says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord tells her, he reassures her. He says, go back to your mistress and submit to her. He added, I will increase your descendants so that they will be too numerous to count. Verse 11, the point here that we want to highlight is that God himself specifically named Ishmael. There are not many individuals in the Bible that God named before their birth. Ishmael was one of the few. You have Ishmael and Isaac, John the Baptist and Jesus, and there were a few other uh, minor characters. And then there are some whose names were changed. But these are the four primary characters throughout the Bible that the Lord himself specifically named as a people that want to peer into the scriptures and understand prophetically what the Lord is saying and what he is doing in the Islamic world, we need to pay attention to this promise, this seed that was planted uh, in the name of Ishmael. So the angel of the Lord says to Hagar, you are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael. And that name means the Lord hears. For the Lord has heard of your misery. So he introduces himself as the Lord who hears. He has heard your misery, Hagar. He has heard your pain. He has seen your pain. And then it says, He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Now here you have what is really unarguably one of the most significant prophetic descriptions of the Ishmaelites. They are a wild donkey of a people. They live in hostility toward all their brothers. And of course, what have we seen in, in recent history in the nation of Iraq? Again, the media calls it sectarian violence. It was Samuel Huntington in his book, The Clash of Civilizations, that made a, a comment to the effect, and I'm paraphrasing, that all of the inward parts of Islam are bloody, and so are all of its borders. In other words, Islam lives, the Islamic world lives in hostility amongst brothers and also toward all those that are on its borders, the non-Islamic world as well. And of course, the, 
Muslims always get furious at this particular verse and they say, oh, here's a perfect example where the Jews, the Jews inserted this verse into the Bible. The Lord would never say such a thing. Why would the Jews want to insult us by inserting this, this corruption into the Bible? But, you know, ultimately it's the Lord who called it. He called it the way he saw it. And, uh, you know, in all fairness, I, uh, I read this passage and I joke and, and I say to myself, Lord, you know me, you know, I'm a wild donkey. I'm a stubborn mule. And I'm sure that a lot of those listening to this uh, will acknowledge the fact that they also are uh, wild donkeys. Genesis 16, verse 13, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. Now, Hagar, the Lord says, I have seen your misery. I have heard your misery. And so Hagar responds. She says, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. This is important. And this is the, the issue that we're going to touch on and repeat and emphasize. The God of the Bible is the God that hears our misery. The God of creation is the God that condescends, that listens to and sees us where we are in our pain and hears us in our misery, and he is deeply emotionally impacted and concerned and desires to heal us and to bring us to a place of healing and redemption. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. This is key. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So he's 86 years old. Now we're going to skip forward a bit in the story to Genesis 21, beginning with verse 7. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah. Now she's Sarah, and Abram is Abraham. And now, these many years later, the Lord is gracious to Sarah, as he had said. You know, years back, they were impatient, and they took it upon themselves to provide for themselves that which the Lord promised. But here, these years later, a few chapters later, the Lord was gracious. He did as he said. And she became pregnant. She bore a son to Abram in his old age. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born. So here's the point. Now Abraham is a hundred years old. When he had Ishmael, he was 86. So Ishmael, at the time that Isaac was born, was a 14-year-old boy. A 14, perhaps 15-year-old boy. Okay, so he is a... You know, a, a young man, and he's, for 14 years, he's had a mother and a father and a family and an inheritance, and he's had a relatively good life. He's got a happy family. Everything's going well. Suddenly, Sarah has a child. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. Now, I have uh, four children, and uh, each time that we've had you know, a, a child, it's always been, um, oh, the, you know, this one, this one's going to stay in the crib. You know, this one's going to be in the crib. But uh, sure enough, and, and I'm not complaining, but sure enough, uh, they, they end up in bed with us. And so, you know, I have this, this very beautiful um, little, little baby in the bed next to me. Um, however, he is or she is in between my wife and I, which is fine uh, for a time, but Let's just say that I can very much relate to Abraham who held a great feast on the day that the child was weaned. 
But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had born to Abraham, he was mocking. So now Ishmael, 14 years old, is mocking the little baby Isaac. And Sarah sees this. She sees that he, she, he was mocking. And then this is what she says. Again, the cycle of sin continues. And she's furious. And she says, now remember, going back, Hagar was called what? Abram's wife. Now what does Sarah say? Get rid of that slave woman and her son. For that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. This is a key verse. You can see the, the bitterness, you can see the anger and the rage, and you can see this specific declaration, that slave woman's son, he will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. Verse 8, the matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you. Because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation as well, because he's your offspring. And so the Lord reassures Abram. He says, listen, I know this is difficult. I know that he is your son, but I have a plan. And it is through Isaac that I will bring redemption to the earth. This is a plan. This is a greater good that cannot be foiled. You need to listen to Sarah and do whatever she tells you. So early in the morning, Abraham took some food and some water. He gives it to Hagar and he sends them off into the desert. She went on her way and she wanders with the boy. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. She goes off some distance and she begins to sob. She says, I cannot watch the boy die. And she sits there weeping. Okay, so they're out in the desert. Now the Lord has already promised to her. He's already revealed himself to her as the one who sees, as the one who hears her misery. And he promised that he will make this boy into a great nation. Once again, she's out in the desert. And now Hagar uh, doesn't have the ability to trust in the promises of God. And he's dying. He's going to die of dehydration. She sets him under a bush. And then, verse 17, God heard the boy crying. We have here the initial fulfillment of this prophetic seed that was planted in the name of Ishmael. God hears. Now God hears the boy crying. And the angel of God calls to Hagar from heaven. He says, Hagar, what's the matter? Do not be afraid. I've heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift him up. Take him by the hand. I told you, I will make him into a great nation. Verse 19, God opens her eyes. She sees a well of water. She fills the water. She gives it to the boy. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert. He became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got him a wife from Egypt. So, we hear these biblical stories, we read these stories, we read them to our children, we read them as children, we read them in study, and they're Bible stories, you know, when we try to draw out various spiritual principles. But what we need to do is stop for a second and take note of the fact that this is 4,000 years ago, there was a very real little boy, a very real little 14-year-old boy that experienced this. He had dreams, he had hopes, he had emotions, he had a father, he had a mother, he had a happy childhood. He had everything that any child from that time could have wanted. And then suddenly, he was abandoned. He was rejected. He's in the desert. He has no father. He has no inheritance. Meanwhile, Isaac, and again from Ishmael's perspective, Isaac, his little brother, had literally usurped his life. 
had stolen his father and stolen his inheritance. This is important. Approximately 2,600 years later, and I don't fully understand how these things all work. I know it's very biblical, the concept of the Father's blessing and, and laying hands on and blessing our children and passing on various blessings. But I'm, I'm, I'm amazed by this fact. 2,600 years after this, this um, traumatic experience in the life of Ishmael, a man named Muhammad in Arabia who claims to have been a direct descendant of Ishmael, who believes himself to be a direct descendant of Ishmael, he rises to become the prophet of a new religion called Islam. And of course, we all know the story. Abraham is in the cave of Hira. He's fasting and praying, as was his habit during this uh, religious month. And he's in the cave, and suddenly this very dark and powerful spiritual presence overwhelms him, literally crushing the life out of him to where he believed he was going to die. A very powerful, dark presence is literally choking the life out of him and it demands ikra recite and muhammad says i don't know how to recite essentially what it what we had in arabia at that time were these these uh, poets these ecstatic poets that would actually allow spirits they would allow themselves to channel spirits through them and they would recite poetry it was essentially uh, demonic rap, if you want to call it that. They allowed demons to speak through them and release uh, poetry in Arabic. And that was called recitation. That was ikra. They were reciting. Muhammad says, I don't know how to do that. And then another time, the, the, the presence overwhelms him and crushes him and chokes him to where he, feel as though he, can't, he feels as though he can't breathe. And then a third time. And finally, the words of the Quran begin to flow out of Muhammad's mouth. This is the beginning of the inspiration of the Quran, the most sacred uh, text in the religion of Islam. This is the birth of a new religion. And here is Muhammad, this direct descendant of Ishmael. And 2,600 years later, this religion is birthed. And what does this religion declare? And we need to take note of this. What does this descendant of Ishmael, this physical and spiritual descendant of Ishmael declare? as he releases this new religion, births this new religion into the earth. God is not a father. God has no son. And Ishmael, not Isaac, is the true heir. Okay? All of the very specific issues that were taking place in Ishmael, the orphan, this child that was orphaned, and, and uh, really not ironically, Muhammad himself, who also had been orphaned multiple times in his young life, who really probably had many of the very same uh, spiritual or emotional issues that Ishmael had. And they birthed forth this religion into the earth, which today is, again, the largest and fastest, the, the fastest growing religion in the world declaring to the earth that God, at the essence of who He is, is not a father, not in the sense that the Bible describes Him as a father, and certainly that God has no son. And then again, Ishmael, the Islamic world, not Isaac, not the Jewish world, is the true heir of God. And we're going to unpack these things and, uh, and break them down. And it's essential. These things have deep relevance to the missionary to the Islamic world in terms of how we're going to relate to Muslims. These things have deep and powerful implications. So as a definition, from a spiritual perspective, 
Islam is the broken and the bitter cry of Ishmael, the fatherless, the orphan, memorialized. This cry, this broken, bitter cry has been memorialized, creedalized, canonized as a religion. As, the, as I said, the fastest religion, uh, fastest growing religion in the world, and I would say the greatest anti-Christ religion that the world has ever known or that the world will ever know. Now I understand again that that is a very significant uh, statement to make, but what we're going to do for the next few minutes here is walk through the theology of the Antichrist. What does the Bible say? We've touched on this a bit, but we want to unpack this some more. What does the Bible say specifically as it defines and identifies the theology of the Antichrist? So we're going to begin with 1 John, the first epistle of John, chapter 2, verse 22 and 23. John says, who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Now, some will object and they will say, well, Joel, wait a minute, hold on. You're trying to relate this to Islam. Islam affirms the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And I would say, yes, in name only. But in terms of the meaning that they pour into that title, Christ, of course, there's, there's no biblical definitions. Uh, the Bible makes it clear that the Messiah is the divine deliverer of Israel and the people of God. He is the savior of the world. He is the one that was the sacrificial lamb for the sins of the earth that provided atonement for the sins of mankind. And he is, you know, the greater Moses. He is the Messiah. He's the son of God, the divine son of God. All of these things, and all of these things, the Quran clearly, Islam clearly denies. They allow him to maintain the title of Messiah, but then they strip that title of any of the most essential and important biblical meanings that are, uh, that are described throughout the Bible. So, uh, does Islam deny that Jesus is the Christ? Yes. It allows, them, it'll, it allows him to maintain that title, but for all intents and purposes, in truth, it denies the fact that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. And then it says this, he denies the Father and the Son. Who is the Father and the Son? The Father is a very specific God, named by name by every prophet throughout the Bible, as Yahweh. Sometimes we could say Jehovah. It is the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jesus, whose name, of course, in Aramaic or Hebrew was Yeshua, maintains that, that name there in his name, Yah, Yahweh, is salvation. Yahweh saves, Yeshua. The Spirit of the Antichrist denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. And then piggybacking on this theme in 2 John chapter 1, verse 7, John says, Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such a person is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So now it's speaking of the incarnation. The idea that God himself became one of us, that he became human, and embrace suffering, that God himself stepped down out of heaven and condescended on our behalf because he loves us. Anyone that denies that Jesus physically came in the flesh is the Antichrist, is an Antichrist. Now, of course, in the first century context, John was speaking to the Gnostic heresy that was so prevalent throughout uh, the region, throughout that part of the world. 
However, in the last days, it's speaking of the Antichrist. The ultimate fulfillment of these things is in the last days. And Islam came along several hundred years after the first century, 600 plus years after the first century. And really what Islam did is incorporated many of the heresies of the early church. It incorporated many elements of Gnosticism. It incorporated the heresy of Arianism. And various heresies were all brought together in one kind of great big heretical hodgepodge or potpourri. And so Islam clearly denies the incarnation. Now let's look. Surah 19, verse 88 through 92. They said, speaking of the Christians, the most gracious hath begotten a son. So you, you Christians that say that God Almighty hath begotten a son, you have uttered a gross blasphemy. The heavens are about to shatter. The earth is about to tear asunder and the mountains are about to crumble because they claim that the most gracious hath begotten a son. No, it is not befitting the most gracious that he should beget a son. One of the most essential foundational doctrines of biblical faith, that which John the Apostle specifically names as the doctrine of the Antichrist, and this religion that was birthed out of that experience in the cave, out of the broken spirit of Muhammad, the descendant of Ishmael, comes forward, and in a creedalized statement, in their holy book, directly, confrontationally, goes for the theological jugular vein of the Christian. And it says, no, God does not have a son. It is, be, it is not befitting His majesty that He would have a son. Surah 9, verse 30. The Christians call Christ the Son of Allah. That is a saying from their mouth. In this, they but imitate what the unbelievers of old used to say. In other words, just like the pagans of old, the Christians today, they're just like the pagans. Allah's curse be on them. How they are deluded away from the truth. You see, if you hold to those doctrines which historically have always been adhered to by orthodox believers, orthodox Christians, then according to the Quran, God's curse is on you. Oh, no, no, my friend, the Quran is very tolerant. It treats the Christians with all sorts of love and respect. We love the Christians. How many of you have heard this or you've seen it in the popular media? Oh, no, the Quran affirms Christianity. We all worship the same God. You're right. Directly in the Quran, numerous places, it speaks directly to those doctrines that are most essential, that are most precious to who God is with regard to what we believe that define the essence and the character and the nature of God is. The God who sees us. The God who hears. The God that condescends. The God that came down. The man befriending God. The self-revealing God. That is the essence of who God is. The God of the Bible is, always has been, the self-revealing, self-sharing God. And the Quran says that if you believe that, then Allah's curse is on you. And of course, we all know the Shahada, the very creed of Islam, which specifically says that there is no God other than Allah, and Muhammad is the final prophet or messenger of Allah. Now again, this is, in my opinion, perhaps the greatest anti-Christ creedal statement that history and the world has ever known. And it states that Allah... Not Yahweh, not the God of the Bible, 
is the one true supreme God. And I'm not going to get into the big discussion of the history of Allah and where that name came from. But notice that the Quran never uses the name Yahweh, that name which is used consistently by all of the prophets that did know God. And it says that Allah, the specific God of Muhammad, is the one true supreme God. And there's no other God other than Allah. And beyond that, Muhammad, not Jesus, is the final messenger of Allah. It says in Hebrews that in these, you know, I sp- in, throughout the times past, the Lord spoke through his prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken through the Son. It is Jesus that is, in fact, the final and ultimate messenger of the one true God, of Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Beyond this, Islam denies the sonship of Christ. Let's continue to look at these things. Surah 5, verse 17. In blasphemy are those that say that God is Christ, the Son of Mary. Surah 10, verse 68. They say, again the Christians, God hath begotten a son. Glory be to him. No, he is self-sufficient. His are all things in heaven on earth. No warrant have ye for this. Say ye about all of what ye know not. You see, over... And over and over again, the Quran attacks this essential revelation, the divine incarnation of God in Jesus. Now, in Jerusalem today, on the Temple Mount, what do we have sitting up there? There's two famous mosques. You have the Mosque of Omar, often referred to as the Dome of the Rock, the Golden Domed uh, Mosque. It's now more of a museum, and then, of course, you have the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And there, in the very location, the very spot, I want you to all consider this and think about this, the very location that for millennia the Jewish people looked to with longing and yearning for the day when the divine Son of God, the Messiah himself, would come and dwell and rule over the earth. They would, he would dwell with man and rule over the earth. From that very location... The location where Jesus said when the Son of Man comes and sits on His throne of glory, judging the earth, judging the nations, that very spot, that very location, there is a monument of utter defiance to that future reality. And encircling the inside of this shrine, in Arabic script, in Arabic font, circling the inside of this Dome of the Rock, are the very verses from the Quran that we just read declaring emphatically that God does not have a son, that anyone that believes that God has a son, or that Jesus is in fact the divine son of God, they are blasphemers. And these are the Quranic verses that encircle the inside of the mosque of Omar. A monument of defiance to the future reality, the very location where the Messiah will rule the nations from that very geographic location. And people will say, oh, that's just coincidence, Joel. Israel today has no prophetic relevance. Uh, Israel, the Lord is done with Israel. The whole, all the nations, all the world are now what's important. Nonsense. Don't anyone tell me that that is a mere coincidence. Islam denies the Trinity. Surah 5, verse 73. They do blaspheme who say Allah is one of three in a trinity. For there is no God except one Allah. Well, of course, we would agree that there is only one God. And as most of us know, the Quran confuses the Trinity and it refers to the Trinity as God, Jesus, and Mary. Or God, Mary, and Jesus. It, it confuses what we actually believe, but that's irrelevant. It says that anyone who believes in the Trinity, again, anyone who adheres to orthodox, historical Christianity, is a blasphemer. 
And then it says, if they desist not from their word of blasphemy, very, verily, a grievous penalty will befall the blasphemers among them. Again, it's blasphemy. And as uh, most Islamic theologians will tell you, the one sin that is unforgivable, the one sin that's completely unforgivable within Islam is the sin of shirk, ascribing partners with God. And so they will say that those that are Trinitarians that believe again in the historical uh, Christian faith have committed the sin of shirk. It is the one sin that is absolutely forbidden, completely unforgivable. If you believe in the Trinity, you are destined for hell according to Islamic theology. He will forgive all sorts of other things, but if you believe in the Trinity, you have committed the sin of shirk. Islam also denies the cross. Surah 4, 157 through 158. Speaking of the Jews, it says, They said, in boast, We killed Christ, Jesus, the Son of Mary, the messenger of Allah. But they killed him not, nor crucified him. But so it was made to appear to them, and those who differ therein are full of doubts, with no certain knowledge. And ironically, it says, They have only conjecture to follow. For surely they killed him not, nay, Allah raised him up unto himself. Allah is exalted in power wise. The irony is that the crucifixion, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the most attested to and uh, issue that is easy to substantiate in ancient history beyond anything else. We have more evidence for that event than any number of major significant historical events, and yet they say they have only conjecture to follow. When in fact it is the Muslim scholars, none of which can agree on specifically what happened, but in general they teach that the Lord, uh, that I'm sorry, that Allah tricked those that were present, that God tricked those that were present, including the disciples, and he made it to appear to them as though Jesus was crucified, but in fact it was someone else. And then Allah delivered Jesus up to heaven supernaturally and saved his life. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul said, As I have told you before, now I say again, even with tears, Paul, with tears in his eyes, he says, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Islam comes along and it denies once more the essential, the non, the non, uh, this is an issue that cannot be compromised in any way, shape, or form, a foundational, basic, fundamental belief of Christianity. Islam attacks those things at the core. And this is one thing that we need to remember. In coming into contact with Muslims, Islam is very much, uh, let's liken it to a, a piece of candy. You know, you look at this, this gobstopper, or, or for, for, for the women, let's just say it's a, a big piece of chocolate. Satan has taken all of the essentials, the divine incarnation, the cross, the trinity, the, uh, the divine incarnation of the Son of God, the divine Son of God. He's taken all of those things, and he said, absolutely not, and he denies them, and that's the core of Islam. And it's those things that make up the core of Islam. But then he candy coats all of these antichrist doctrines with all sorts of other things that are palatable, that seem appealing. And he, he candy coats his poison in order that it would be palatable. If, if Satan didn't candy coat his poison, no one would accept it. But this is what he does. He allows doctrines such as the idea that Jesus was born of a virgin, because that's really not, you know, it's not a core essential uh, a doctrine. I mean, of course, it's it's tied into essential doctrines, but he allows certain things. But when it comes to those essential doctrines that reveal the nature of who God really is, Satan would not allow it. 
And so it is, so it is with Islam. So I want to um, just continue on this theme a little bit. One of the things that I discovered early on as I was interacting with Muslims is that as, I, as I've discussed and as we've discussed, they go for the jugular. They are well-trained, well-equipped to come at you from a polemical perspective and to attack everything you believe. And they always use sort of the, the goofy low blows. They'll say things like, oh, well, so you believe Jesus is, uh, is God. Is that, is that his body too? Um, if you had some of the fingernail clippings of Jesus, would you worship them? Are those fingernail clippings God? And, you know, they always try to bring the discussion down and they use mockery and they hammer away and they hammer away and they always attack those foundational doctrines. But what happened over the years through interacting with Muslims is I found that because of being attacked on those issues, I would turn to the scriptures. I would meditate on the doctrines of the incarnation, on the doctrine of the uh, Trinity, on the historicity of the cross and the power of the cross and the message of the cross, which is why we have Samuel Zwemer's book, uh, The Glory of the Cross, a book that I recommend to everyone, a powerful book. But what happens is that when we interact with Muslims and we are challenged on these essential doctrines, then either one will eventually cave as I have seen in many cases where so-called Christians eventually convert to Islam, or we will be strengthened in those things. And the Lord will open up the glory and the beauty of these doctrines in which are contained the essential revelation of who God is. And so we're strengthened in these things. And it's wonderful uh, if if we can allow Muslims to sharpen us as iron sharpens iron, and as they attack us that we'd be strengthened in these core foundational doctrines. Uh, of the historical faith. But one of the stories that I always like to uh, share with Muslims and really uh, the church as well in order to convey the difference, because what this does is this cuts to the core of the difference between the God of the Bible and the God of the Quran. And so let's just say that you have two men. Let's say you have two dads. And let's just say the first man is uh, Saladin. We, we say Saladin. Of course, this is... Uh, the, the, the Muslim leader that drove the Crusaders out of the Middle East, and for that reason, uh, Muslims love him. And let's say the other man is, is Muhammad. So let's say Saladin comes home from a, a busy day at work, and his daughter, more than anything, loves it when her dad gets down on the floor, gets down on the carpet with her every day, and she asks him, Daddy, will you play dolls with me? And Saladin comes home every day. And for an hour, even though he's tired, even though he's, uh, you know, he's distracted by different events, he gets down on the carpet and he makes a complete fool of himself. He humbles himself and he plays dolls. And he, he makes comments about how pretty the shoes are and where did that fabric come from? And, and the daughter, and they just do this for hours. And the daughter feels loved. She feels so loved by her dad and she connects with her dad during these times. And then on the other hand, you have Muhammad. Muhammad comes home and his daughter says, Daddy, Daddy, will you play with dolls with me? And what does Muhammad say? Far be it from the ruler of the armies of Islam that I would get down on the rug and play with dolls. No, it is not befitting the majesty and the dignity of who I am that I would ever do such a thing. Nay, nay. In this picture... I ask my Muslim friends, I say, which one of these two men 
is a better dad? And the answer is clear. Then I say, which one of these two men is a better man? Which one of these two men is greater? The answer is clear. And they'll, they'll talk around it and try, to, and try to get out from it, but they know the point that you've just conveyed is clear. The God of the Bible is the God that humbled Himself, that He stepped down out of heaven, He made Himself a servant of all, even to the point of embracing death on a cross, because He loves His children. He is the God that hears, He is the God that sees us, He is the self-revealing God, the self-sharing God. He is the God of the incarnation. And that is, in the incarnation, the culmination of the incarnation, was the cross when he embraced suffering, and there is no point that he would not go because he loves us so. He loves us so much. On the other hand, you have the God of Islam. Far be it from God that he would ever come down. When, when, when we say God had a son, we're not saying that God had a son through the natural means as though God is a man, that he got some woman pregnant. No, that's not the point at all. The idea when we say God the Son is to convey the fact that the God of creation revealed Himself, that He condescended and took on flesh, that He came down and He embraced suffering. That is what the biblical definition of the Son of God is. That aspect of God that reveals Himself to mankind. The God of the Quran says, far be it from Allah that He would ever do such a thing. The God of Islam is an insecure self-preserving, pathetic God who is unworthy of being served. He is unworthy of worship. He is a false and pathetic God that will be destroyed. And as an idol, He will be cast down. And as we as missionaries and evangelists to the Islamic world, as we face Muslims, and they come at us for the, with the jugular vein, they go at the essential core doctrines, we need to come back at them and say, no, 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 no. What we have, the God that has revealed Himself in this book, is appealing on an emotional, a philosophical, and a theological level in every way, shape, and form. And the God of the Quran is unworthy of even being considered, and He needs to be rejected completely. That's a difficult place to stand in. I want to just tell a, uh, a brief story, <clears throat> a personal story. As I've mentioned a few times, before I got saved, I was a hedonist. I grew up in South Boston. And uh, as, a, as a teenager, I had a, a very close friend named Mike. And Mike was, um, was often abused by his, his father. His father was a bit of an alcoholic and uh, a very large, angry man at times. And as a result of the abuse that was taking place in Mike's life, he came to live. My uh, parents were divorced, and I lived with, with my mother. And Mike came to live with my mother and I. And Mike was really, I have older uh, sisters. I never really had a, a real brother. Mike was the closest thing that I ever had to uh, having a brother. But um, Mike also was a severe alcoholic, and he was also uh, addicted to crack crack cocaine and uh you know not that i was perfect but um those were simply things that i was not into uh in those days and because mike was my friend i was always getting on his case i was always giving him a hard time i was telling him mike you're going to kill somebody you're going to kill yourself you need to slow down you need to wake up you need to stop this and as a result of this it was very difficult because mike was 
really the life of the party. And on the weekends, you wanted to be where Mike was. But what happened is because I was getting on Mike's case, I was, uh, I was an irritant to him, and he started avoiding me. He started doing his best to try to you know, avoid being around me, particularly on the weekends when he would be uh, getting really drunk and, and doing drugs. And, uh, and it was painful. It was actually very difficult for me to feel the rejection of my close friend, my close friend Mike. But then what happened was another man that was getting in my face and really uh, pushing the issue with me for years, a friend of mine's father had been inviting me to Bible study consistently every time I saw him. He should come to our Bible study. And I always said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then one night, for some reason, I was, I was supposed to go out with Mike, but he was a little bit late. And for some reason, at the last minute, I, I slipped out and I went to a Bible study. And later that night, Mike was drinking and driving as usual. He was going around a corner doing about 80, 90 miles per hour, and his truck began to roll. And as he was hanging out the window, he died instantly. And it was very difficult. It was uh, The Lord used that as a powerful event in my life. But then what happened changed my life. It impacted me deeply, and it changed my life. I was um, returning some things to, to Mike's dad a few days later, a few days after the funeral, and I was talking to his dad, and he said, you know, he said, I have to tell you something. Uh, a few days before Mike died, just a few days before he died, he told me, he said that you are his only real friend. He said that of all the friends that he has, and believe me, he had a lot of close friends. He said, Mike told me that you're the only one of all of his friends that really genuinely cares about him. And I was completely shocked. I was completely shocked because for months, for you know, a long stretch of time, he had been completely avoiding me. And it seemed on the surface that he was mad at me and that, in fact, he didn't like me. And even though I wasn't a believer yet, I made a vow that day. And I said, Lord, for the rest of my life, I am not going to be one of those people that sits back and shuts his mouth when I see someone destroying their life. When I see someone committing suicide, killing themselves physically or spiritually, in order to be liked, I will not compromise. I will not put my name of approval. I will not put my stamp of approval on someone's death certificate. I don't care if it's uh, someone who's practicing homosexuality or someone who is uh, moving toward embracing Islam or practicing Islam or doing drugs, whatever it might be. I said, Lord, I am going to make the hard decision to be the individual that continues to lovingly get in people's faces and say the hard things. Now, we've, we've discussed a few different things in this session. We've discussed the clear anti-Christ theology of Islam. We've also discussed, and we want to come back to this, the other side of the equation, which is this. In these last days, in these last days, the Lord once again Although he heard the cry of Ishmael when he was in the desert, today he is once again hearing the cry of Ishmael. And there is a revival throughout the Islamic world that is greater than anything that we've seen up until this point in history. And throughout the Islamic world, as these Muslims bow and pray again five times a day to the God they don't know, the one true God of heaven is responding and hearing their cry, and he is revealing himself to them and he's waking some up and he is hearing their cry and as the as the world uh, of those the community of those that are reaching out to the muslim community are wrestling uh, 
with which approach, with what approach they are going to take, with what methodology, methodology they are going to utilize in their attempt to reach out to Muslims. You have many that are embracing the, what I'll call the hyper-contextualized approach, various movements such as the Jesus in the Quran seminar or the Common Ground, the Insider Movement. All of these various movements which focus on trying to find common ground with Islam. And they fail. They fail to acknowledge or recognize the clear anti-Christ foundation of Islam. And they focus only on that which we have in common. Believing that they are using wisdom and more love when in fact they're actually following the spirit of the age. So what is our... What is our balance? What is the place that we who love Muslims are to utilize as we reach out to Muslims? We need to be individuals that stand in that very difficult place, that very difficult place of speaking the truth in love, of declaring, and I will continue to declare, that Islam is an antichrist religion. In fact, it is the antichrist religion, the greatest antichrist satanic religion that the world has ever known. And on the same token, I am going to love Muslims with all of my heart. And I'm going to speak those things because I love Muslims. And because Islam is the enemy of the souls of mankind. And because Allah is not worthy of being worshipped. I will speak the truth in love. And we need to determine as missionaries and evangelists that we also will speak the truth in love to our Muslim friends. So what is our response? What is our duty to Muslims in these days if we desire to give ourselves to them. Again, we need to speak the truth boldly, testify to the fact that God does have a son. We can't back down. We often see missionaries uh, compromising on this issue. Many of the insider translations of the Quran actually removing that very phrase, the son of God, saying it's offensive to Muslims. That is not an issue that you compromise on. No, not one bit. Why is it that it's always the Christians compromising? No, no, no. We will not compromise. Beyond that, we are to bear witness. We are to demonstrate the Father's love, His unrelenting love, His sacrificial love as we live as people of the cross, as we model the cross to our Muslim friends and we become a culture of the cross. And then as intercessors, we are to pray. And cry out and say, Lord, do for them what you did for us. Hear the cry of Ishmael. Fulfill that prophetic promise that you placed in that name so many thousands of years ago. And in these last days, Lord, hear the cry of Ishmael. Reveal yourself to them. Open their eyes and draw them to yourself. And then finally, and again this is essential, as we disciple them, we need to disciple them to become loving witnesses to their brother Isaac. That when Muslims come to faith, that we need to uh, cleanse them of the anti-Semitism that is so often part of the Islamic culture. We need to cleanse and, and help them to repent of and remove that bitter, broken attitude and that hatred toward the Jewish people and disciple them to become loving witnesses to their brother Isaac. Amen.